have put a new song in my mouth. A song of praise, a sound that resonates, that all of heaven and earth may worship you. We tread the hills to meet with you, to see your majesty in all that surrounds us. For it speaks and displays the eternal God of ages, creator, author, victor. In love, you established an everlasting covenant with your people. And it's your love that captivates us. As children of the King, we rush in as waves unrestrained. Overcome, overwhelmed, that the King crowned in glory and splendor would reach down to place a crown upon our heads. So we raise our banner, the banner we boldly stand under, the banner of Jesus Christ. From dusk to dawn, from age to age, your praise resounds in all the earth. Deliverer, redeemer, ruler of an everlasting kingdom that cannot be shaken. We trust in the name of Christ Jesus, the only king forever. Welcome to Zion's Redemption Radio. This is Fundamentally Mormon. I'm your host, Mark Lichtenwalter. The guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. You can find this at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentallymormon. And the text will also be posted on my Facebook wall at facebook.com forward slash L-A-Z-U-R-U-S 1977. You can also find the text and the audio to this radio program on iTunes at Fundamentally Mormon and in the different Facebook groups that I am an admin of. Some of those groups are LDS Last Days Prophecy and Gospel Discussions, LDS Gospel Mysteries, Latter-day Unity, and others. You can find the pages that I have been also on my Facebook wall. And if you enjoy this program, please friend, request me, or follow me, and uh, make me one of your close friends. We try to put out as many episodes as we can during the week. But I'm thankful for you to be here today. Let's get right into the reading today. We are going to be reading out of Ogden Kraut's book. You can find his books for free to read online at ogdenkraut.com. That's O-G-D-E-N-K-R-A-U-T.com. That's O-G-D-E-N-K-R-A-U-T.com. Welcome to the program. Today is the sixth day of June 2021. The guest call in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. You can find the chat room during the live programs at fundamentallymormon.com forward slash fundamentallymormon. So, uh, my wife has uh, my daughter, and my daughter is doing softball practice right now. 
and I'm driving my truck. So she'll be on in a little bit. But uh, we have a caller last night. His name was Zachary, and he was from South Carolina. He professed to be a, uh, a fundamental, fundamentalist Baptist or a Baptist fundamentalist or something. I don't know. Anyway, but he said that he was, he came out of the Catholic Church and became a Baptist, and he didn't know much about Mormonism, and uh, he wanted to ask some questions. That's what he said to me in the the uh, screening room before I brought him on the air, and then uh, he professed to try to tell me what the Book of Mormon says. Yeah, and if you heard the conversation last night, you know anything about the Book of Mormon, you know that he didn't know what he was talking about. Uh, He also tried to say that the two witnesses in Jerusalem in Revelations chapter 11 were false prophets and that they were Mohammed and Joseph Smith. And I was like, well, okay, so um, they prophesy in the streets for three and a half years, they have the power of God. After they're put to death, they're, they lay in the streets for three days and three nights, and then on the third day, God raises them from the dead. And then in chapter 11 of Revelation, it says that the demand child, which is talking about the same witness, the witness, God the witness, two witnesses are God the witness and another witness. They, uh, they're raised in resurrection and brought up to God's throne. Well, that's because one of the witnesses that dies is God the witness come in the flesh. Joseph Smith actually taught that um, the Holy Ghost is yet a spiritual body waiting to take himself a physical body to do the same or similar things as Jesus did. And uh, some fundamentalists want to say uh, Joseph Smith is God the witness, but then that contradicts section 130 where Jesus Christ tells Joseph Smith that the Father and the Son have bodies which are flesh and bone, not flesh and blood. I made a mistake by saying flesh and blood last night, but they're flesh and bone, which means they're resurrected bodies. But that God the witness or the Holy Ghost is uh, a spirit body at least at that time in the 1800s he was a spirit body because he had not yet come to take a physical body as Joseph said that he would and um, anyway but that's who one of the two witnesses is I don't know who the other one is I I was wondering maybe if so God showed me in 2013 um, the war in heaven, and uh, I was actually really upset at the time because um, my state president was a Babylonian businessman who had never met me before, called me into his office because somebody turned me in. I'm pretty sure it was my mother-in-law. But it could have been somebody else. So so he wanted to know what I thought about, um, well, a couple different things. Anyway, so I proceeded to be very blunt and honest with him. And I said, look, 
I know that Joseph Smith was a true prophet, and I told him why I know that. But that um, when he was trying to press me to sustain Thomas Monson as a prophet here in Revelator, I said, well, I can't. And he wanted to know why they the fruits of being a prophet here a revelator. I do sustain him as president of the church. Yeah, and I believe that he has the inspiration of God, um, but I don't believe that he's a prophet because he has never given any prophecy. I don't believe he's a revelator because he doesn't reveal anything. And I don't believe he's a seer because he has never had visions that he's given to the church. There's no thus saith the Lord revelation that these guys give. None of them. For a long time. And even, in fact, going back to David O. McKay, where he professed, and they all do this, they all profess to, you know, are they're special witnesses, and they imply all this stuff, but David O. McKay's the only one that I know of that's actually said, yes, I have seen him. Of course, he kind of danced around it and implied a bunch of stuff, but um, he actually said that the Savior's eyes were brown. And I'm like, no, they're not. Because in, um, in 1995, when I was a Southern Baptist, that's why this guy that called in last night is not going to slip one by me. Because not only was I a Southern Baptist, I was really anti-Mormon. I studied all this stuff and attacked the Mormon church uh, and uh, Prophet Joseph Smith and I believe that Joseph was deceived by demons or an uh, angel of light, which is Satan himself. You know, but in 95, when I was a Baptist, I was laying in my bed and in jo- a place called Job Corps in Clearfield, Utah, Antelope Drive, I think it is. And um, I was taken up in the spirit that Jesus Christ himself took me into the Salt Lake Temple. And he led me around the different rooms, and we made our way up into the middle tower on the east side of the Salt Lake Temple, just under the Angel Moroni. It is the highest room in the temple, and uh, he told me to go in the room. And I remember before I went in the room, I was looking in the room, and there was an altar that was facing towards the east for one person. And the room was uh, had curtains in it, and it was circular. And um, if you look on the middle tower on the east side, it's the only tower that actually has windows in the tower. They're on the north and the south side of the temple. But anyway, when I went into that room, when I walked through the threshold of that room, it was like ta- it was like walking into pure love times infinity, like just amazing just powerful. The spirit was so strong in there. And I heard, but did not see, I heard the voice of God, the Father, and I knew exactly who it was. Even though I believed in the Trinity at that time, at that point, I knew that there was a difference between Jesus and the Father. And um, I... uh, I heard the voice of the Father tell me that I would be the last prophet before the Lord, uh, before Jesus Christ returns. And that really confused me, because I was an anti-Mormon Baptist. 
did not like the church. I was raised by LDS people. I've had bad experiences where, um, I'm not going to get into it, but I was baptized because my grandparents in the LDS church, because my grandparents threatened my mom that they would take her out of the wheel if they didn't get me baptized. And so I got baptized even though we were not going to church at the time. And um, that's why I was a member of the church. And then when I lived with my aunt and uncle when I was younger, they made sure I got the priesthood at the right time, you know, 12, deacon, uh, teacher at 14, priest at 16. And um, I just... I didn't want anything to do with the, with the church or anything else, but then I had this massive, amazing experience. So anyway, um, I went into, uh, I, 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 you know, I did Job Corps. I got out of Job Corps in 96, and um, I had some other experiences where I met the missionaries of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and I listened to them. And uh, I asked God if Joseph Smith was a prophet. The Holy Spirit testified to me that he was. And so from that point on, I was converted. In 97, I went on my mission. Uh, I got my endowments out at the Salt Lake Temple because I wanted to see if everything was the same as what I had seen in this vision where I was taken up in the Spirit, and it was. So in 2000 and no, in 1997, I got my patriarchal blessing, and I was told that uh, I have been given the greatest gift that God has to bestow, the gift of eternal life. Hold on. I'm uh, probably not in the best area right here. I'm going to swing and cut. So, in my patriarchal blessing, it said that I have been given the greatest gift that God has to bestow, the gift of eternal life. Later, when I asked the state president and the state patriarch about what that even meant, they said that it meant that I had already had uh, my calling and election made sure. So then I was like, well, what does that even mean? What does it mean to have your calling and election made sure? How does that even work? So I studied it out for years and years and years, and I did. I went on my mission to Macon, Georgia, uh, in the late 90s. After my mission, I became an over-the-road truck driver, and um, I would do tons of missionary work all over North America. I did not live anywhere, but I had a car in Salt Lake, and uh, when I would come home uh, to my mom's house, uh, you know, I had my car, but I would stay out, and I would go to all these places. And I did tons of missionary work during that time, and I learned a lot, and I got revelations, and I believed God when he said, you know, that all these gifts can be had by anyone, basically. Uh, Joseph Smith said the same type of thing. And so I had dreams and visions and revelations, and God taught me during that time, but I also taught a lot as well, and in 2003, when I was asking God what it meant to have your calling and election made sure, I was caught up in the flesh, and so I've had a lot of experience where I've been caught up in the spirit, and I love it because any pain in this body, and I have plenty of pain in my body ever since I was a kid, 
uh, when I'm in the spirit, I don't have any of that pain. It's very light. Free and no density of your body. But when I was caught up in the, in the flesh, I could feel the density of, the density of my body. And um, I could feel the breeze and the, the cold grass on the mountain uh, where I was taken to. And I was told to follow this trail, and I could feel the sun and like everything. So I walked up this trail over a very long period of time, climbed this mountain, and at the top of the mountain I saw what seemed to be a small temple. Now this was 2003. This happened. They didn't have many temples at that time, I don't think. Monticello, Utah was the first mini temple. But anyway, so I saw this small temple. And long story short, when I went into that temple, I was instructed by a voice to go into this place. And I went in, and I saw a really bright light. And when I crossed the threshold into the Holy of Holies in that temple... It was the same as crossing the threshold into the middle tower on the east side of the Salt Lake Temple, and I felt overwhelming power. God, peace, love, joy, times infinity. And as I walked into that room towards the light, I began to see that there was a man standing in the light, just one. And when I went further in, I saw who it was, and I immediately recognized him as my Father in Heaven. And I fell down on my face before him. And he told me to get up, and he opened his arms, and I went and embraced him. Like a son would to a father that has not seen him in a long time. And I knelt down before I embraced the Father. He told me to kneel down before him. He placed his hands on my head, and he gave me the fullness of the priesthood and all of the keys to the priesthood and the kingdom. That happened in 2003. In 2013, when I was asking God why all these things were happening to me with this, this wicked snake president excommunicating me, from the LDS Church, I uh, I was shown. I was taken up. I, he said, kneel before me and ask me who you are. And I was taken up and I kneeled before the Father. Now, I have to come back in just a minute. I'm at Sunnyside Dip, so uh, I know it's going to break up for about half a mile. Just my wife isn't on. I'm going to just drop the phone call. I'll call right back in now. Okay, and the reason why I did that is because I know that on the podcast, um, I could be gone for a couple minutes and it will get rid of the dead air and it'll come back together so quick. So if you're listening live, sorry, I had to do that, but it would have been dead air anyway. So, all right, anyway, so when God told me to kneel down before him and ask him who I was in 2013, I was taken up in the spirit again, and God stood next to me, and he said, look, and I looked, and I saw 
a vast congregation of people. And I came down and I saw this platform, a large platform like a stage in front of all these people. And standing on the stage in front of each of their prospective thrones was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Three individuals. And this was before this earth was created. This is before the foundation of this earth that just happened. And I saw in front of them 12, and God said, these are my mighty and strong ones. And I was told that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are also mighty and strong for this earth. And that they form a, like a first presidency for this earth. And the first one was God the Father, or God the Creator, who is Michael. And God the Redeemer, who is Yeshua, who the Gentiles call Jesus. And God the Witness, the Bearer of Light and Truth, who in the Hebrew tongue is called Hillel. But in the Latin, his name is Lucifer. And I saw that Lucifer rebelled against the Father and the Son. And there were others who were mighty and strong who also rebelled and went with Lucifer. And they lost their office and position as God the Witness, or Lucifer, or Hillel. And some of the mighty and strong ones were also cast out. And I was uh, shown that they had, Lucifer had his name and title stripped from him. And he became Satan. And that God the Father, Michael, our Father, under the direction of Yehovah our Elohim, and Jesus Christ, or Yeshua, God the Redeemer, went among they who were mighty and strong and chose me to take the place of God the Witness, or the bearer of light and truth. And that is why I have seen the Father and embraced him in the flesh. That's why I've had these experiences that I've had in my life, because I am an eyewitness of the Father and the Son. I do not like to be referred to as a God, but I am the witness. And I have seen them face-to-face, in the flesh. And just as Joseph Smith said, God the witness was a spiritual body waiting to take himself a physical body to come to do the same or similar things that Jesus did. My ministry started shortly after the death of Ariel Sharon, which Rabbi Yitzhak Kadori, who was also a witness of the Savior, he was, a, uh, he was a rabbi. He is like 106 or something like that. But in 2006, he said that shortly out, he knew he'd seen the Messiah, but he also knew that there was another Messiah, Messiah ben Joseph and Messiah ben Judah. He'd seen Messiah ben Judah, Yehoshua, or Yeshua. Yeshua is the Hebrew version of the Aramaic. The, uh, the Aramaic is Yehoshua. Hebrew is Yeshua. Um, in Greek, it's Jesus. In English, it's uh, Jesus. In Latin, it's Yeshua. No, it's Jesus. 
you know, thanks. Anyway, so, um, Rabbi Yitzhak Kadori at that time, he said that I, that I did not know who I was, that God was revealing things to me, and that my ministry would start shortly after the death of Ariel Schroeder. Now, I didn't know this at the time, and I didn't find this out until after I started my ministry. But when I went back to look at when Ariel Sharon died, it was the exact same month, shortly before I started my ministry, uh, doing my worldwide radio, internet radio show and podcast, The Kingdom of God or Nothing. So Rabbi Yesat Kadori, he knew. He knew. God revealed to him. Now, all the Christians that heard about that Rabbi Yitzhak Kadori, they, they were like, oh, Jesus is coming back shortly after the death of Ariel Shron. And then when that didn't happen, they all said, oh, he's a false prophet. But, but the fulfillment of the prophecy wasn't how they expected it to be, but it did happen. So that was in January of 2013. Eldridge G. Smith was the, patriarch, the last patriarch over the whole church. Uh, he was made an emeritus status patriarch, and they never called another one after him because the patriarch is supposed to be able to excommunicate the president of the church. Also, you can be the Lord's anointed and not be the president of the church. And Brigham Young taught that. But anyway, getting back. So, um, shortly after the death of Ariel Sharon, Eldridge G. Smith died. In, I think it was April of 2013, and then God told me in July of 2013 to sever the priesthood and ordinances of all the holy people. And I said, God, why do you want me to do that? He said, because if they will not accept you as my witness, I will not accept them, and neither will Jesus Christ. Because I have been sent to call the people to repent, I have been filled up to the Father, and I have been made the link on the earth to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers through the sealing ordinances of the law of adoption. And in order to get your correct ordinances done, you have to come to me. Now, I'm speaking to the leaders of the LDS Church. You have to do it, too. The power of the priesthood that you think that you have has been severed. Okay, my wife's coming on. Hold on here. Are you there? Yep. Okay, so I'm just telling them about some of the experiences that I've had. Um, Are you home yet? Yeah. Okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to hang up on the radio show so that you can call in to the host line. It's just better if you're on the host line. And I'll call into the radio show, and then um, and then you can start the read. I was just telling the people about how God told me to sever the ordinances of all the holy people. 
Now, I told my aunt about this thing that I that God commanded me to do, and I did, in July of 2013. And about a month later, she was reading in Daniel chapter 12, and she read where the man clothed in linen in the last days gathered the power of all the holy people. Now, who are the holy people in the last days? That is the Latter-day Saints who have the priesthood through the restoration of the prophet Joseph Smith. And what is their power? That is the priesthood. And the correct translation shouldn't be scatter, it should be sever, because that is what has happened. It is a hard reset. The priesthood has not been taken off the earth, and there is reasons why God did this hard reset, one of which I already mentioned. But there's other reasons as well, because many people's lines of authority have been corrupted through apostasy, because of something that Hebrew J. Grant did, which I'm not going to get it. Well, I'll talk about it just real quick. In 1921, Heber J. Grant, as president of the church, instructed the members to, uh, to ordain to offices, but not to confer priesthood. From 1921 to 1957, the priesthood was not conferred, but they were ordained to offices without priesthood. So many of your lines of authority are not, they don't, don't, they just don't exist because somebody who, who got the priesthood before you, they didn't get it. They, they had confirmation of an office, but not confirmation of the priesthood. So anyway, um, so that's one of the reasons. There's a bunch of other reasons too, but but the main one is if when I asked God why, He said if you if they will not accept you as my witness, I will not accept them. And it's the same thing with the Jews. They accept the Father, but they don't accept the Son, so they're not accepted. Now the the saints accept the Father and the Son, but then they argue about who the witness is, and it's the same thing. Jesus Christ. Okay, so the Christians, they accept the Son, but they won't accept the Father because of the Trinity false doctrine, so they're rejected as well. Anyway, so um, I'm going to jump off real quick. Kim, go ahead and call into the to the studio. I'm going up the, the mine road right now, so I will call in as soon as I can. You have everything, uh, all your reading stuff and everything ready to go? Yeah, I just pulled that up. Okay, and also I forgot to dedicate the program, so uh, can you do that? Yep, uh, when I call back in. Yes, okay. All right, I'm going to jump off. And uh, for the listening audience or listening live, I'm sorry, it's too bad to be. The iTunes audience, they're, they're not even going to hear very much of a break because it's awesome. But anyway, all right, I'm jumping off. I'll call back into the uh, the guest call in the number. Okay, I'm back on, but I don't see my wife. Oh, there she is. Okay, good deal. Yeah, I just caught all right, her. All right. going... They had to, like, do all the dialing. Yeah. I know. All right, well, I'll get myself. Go ahead and... Uh, do what you have to do, and I'll be honest. As soon as I get on. 
Okay, so we're going to be reading the Gift of Prophecy and Revelation, Part Two of Chapter Nine of All of the of Holy Priesthood, Volume Five. Oh man, I'm already tongue-tied. Not even reading yet. Already tongue-tied. Um. Okay. And yesterday we read a lot of this chapter, got through a whole bunch of it, and um, left off right before page one seventeen. And it looks like. Yeah, and it looks like we're we have we're gonna start a little bit before then, so it might be a little bit of a review, um, but that's okay because review is always good when we're learning, right? Um, oh, and uh, we have to dedicate the program, so we didn't start that yet. So uh, we'll go ahead and dedicate first, and then uh, begin the reading. Our Father in heaven, we come before thee this night and give thee thanks for the days that we have been able to spend uh, learning and teaching and being able to have new experiences and being able to teach others also. We thank thee, Lord, for all the many blessings thou hast given unto us and for the time that we have to be able to focus on thee and focus on the words that thou would have us learn tonight. We ask thee to watch over and Keep us safe and have thy Holy Spirit to be with us. Help us to be able to feel peace and calm and understanding while we're studying of our ability these histories and and the things of the prophets and from the past. And we ask thee to watch over each and every individual who is listening to this program and trying to find a way to be closer to the Lord and we ask you to help them out with their own personal uh, shortcomings and their personal um, things that they are striving to achieve. We ask the all these things and ask for thy blessings to be upon us and these things we say in the name of Yeshua, even Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, the gift of prophecy and revelation part two of chapter nine of Holy Priesthood volume five. Article five of our Articles of Faith clearly states that we believe that a man must be called of God by prophecy and revelation, not by nomination, approval, vote, and seniority. The majority of active members believe the LDS Church is being run by constant revelation. However, if such an important process as choosing the president of the church is done by nomination, seniority, and voting, then we should wonder how other church affairs are being conducted and administered. Most members today believe that church leadership cannot err, but Brigham Young disputed that in Journal Discourse, Volume 6, page 100, quote, the first presidency have a right, a great influence over this people, and if we should get out of the way and lead this people to destruction, what a pity it would be. End quote. Again, Journal of Discourse, Volume 6, page 100. I am more afraid that this people have so much confidence in their leaders that they will not inquire for themselves of God whether they are led by him. I am fearful they settle down in a state of blind self-security, trusting their eternal destiny in the hands of their leaders with a reckless confidence that in itself would thwart the purpose 
purposes of God in their salvation and weaken that influence they could give to their leaders. Did they know for themselves by revelations of Jesus that they are led in the right way? Let every man and woman know by the whisperings of the Spirit of God to themselves whether their leaders are walking in the path the Lord dictates or not. Journal of Discourse, Volume 9, page 150. According to the established order of the senior apostle becoming church president, if the Lord should want someone else, he would have to take the lives of all the older apostles to reach the one he wants. In reality, the Lord should dictate his preference by revelation. He may not even want one of the apostles as president, not because they are incapable, but perhaps he is satisfied with their work as missionaries. God chose the shepherd boy, David, to Israel to save Israel, and he might want to make a similar choice today rather than a senior apostle. Since the proper order for selection should be by a revelation from God, who should receive this divine communication? It should come through the father of the church, the patriarch, not by the quorum of the apostles making unanimous vo- a unanimous vote of their own selection and approval. The duties of the apostles as traveling counselors in all the world are, number one, to officiate in the name of the Lord, number two, to build up the church, and three, to regulate all the affairs of the same in all nations. DNC 107, 23, and 33. Not in the stakes of Zion, Joseph made it very clear when he said the twelve will have no right to go into Zion or any of the stakes, and there undertake to regulate the affairs thereof. End quote. That's Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 74. Although it is often admitted that apostles have nothing to do with governing the affairs in the stakes of Zion, this has not always been the case. For example, example Elder Marky Peterson spent much of his time going through the stakes directing the excommunications of numerous members. Since the apostles are acting in the affairs of the stakes and determining the selection of the presidency of the church, this means they are not following the Lord's counsel. So why should he give them any further revelation when they haven't complied with what has already been giving? given? If the apostles are making the selection of the church presidents, it is similar to a woman getting revelation to govern her husband. Such a revelation makes it questionable and regardless of how clear, beautiful, and reasonable it may be. Furthermore, when the apostles released the church patriarch from his duties, it was like several wives putting away their husband as head of the house. Revelation from God to the church does not continue when proper order is not followed. When the President Joseph F. Smith gave his deposition before the Senate hearings in 1904, he admitted that the revelation had ceased among church leadership. Senator Hoare, that's what his name is, H-O-A-R, I would like to ask one question, which is flatly curiosity, for this is a most interesting matter. Did I understand you correctly that there has been no revelation since this revelation of Woodruff for the general government of the church? Mr. Worthington, he said there have been none, none for 21 years except that that is the only one in 21 years, Senator Hoare. Then there has been none since, so that you have received no revelation yourself, Mr. Smith? No, sir. Senator Du Bois. Have you received any revelation from God, which has been submitted by you and the apostles to the body of the church in their semi-annual conference, which revelation has been sustained by the conference through the upholding of their hands? Mr. Smith, since when? Senator Du Bois, since you became president of the church. Mr. Smith, 
No, sir. None whatever. Senator Du Bois, have you received any individual revelations yourself since you became president of the church under your own definition, even of a revelation? Mr. Smith, I cannot say that I have. Senator Du Bois, can you say that you have not? Mr. Smith, no, I cannot say that I have not. Senator Du Bois, then you do not know whether you have received any such revelation as you have described or whether you have not? Mr. Smith, well, I can say this. That if I live as I should in the line of my duties, I am susceptible, I think, of the impressions of the Spirit of the Lord upon my mind at any time, just as any good Methodist or any other good church member might be. And so far as that is concerned, I say, yes, I have had impressions of the Spirit upon my mind very frequently, but they are not in the sense revelations. End quote. That's from Smoot Hearings, Volume 1, page 314, and also page 483 and 84. This is an amazing confession. For over a hundred years, the saints have gone to conference and have never heard a prophecy, or thus saith the Lord, revelation. With all the earth-shaking events, troubles, and perils that have transpired, where was a prophecy or revelation warning the saints about them? With all the changes that have been made in the church doctrine and ordinances, where are the revelations upon which they were based? Doesn't it seem strange that for over a century, 15 men have been continuously sustained as prophets, seers, and revelators, but yet they have never published a prophecy or a revelation? If men do not have the gift of prophecy and revelation, how important is it to follow them? If they have only impressions of the Spirit, just as any good Methodist does. There is no more reason to follow them than to follow any good Methodist. Joseph Fielding Smith rationalized that impressions on the soul are greater than visions or seeing the Savior. The question frequently arises, is it necessary for a member of the Council of the Twelve to see the Savior in order to be an apostle? It is their privilege to see him if occasion requires. But the Lord has taught that there is a stronger witness than seeing a personage, even of seeing the Son of God in a vision. Impressions on the, on the soul that come from the Holy Ghost are far more significant than a vision. That comes from Empirical Era, November 1966, page 979. But, but compare this with Oliver Cowdery's in, instructions to the Twelve Apostles in the Dispensation, February 1835. Never cease striving until you have seen God face to face. Strengthen your faith, cast off your doubts, your sins, and all your unbelief, and nothing can prevent you from coming to God. Your ordination is not full and complete till God has laid his hand upon you. We require as much to qualify us as did those who have gone before us. God is the same. If the Savior in former days laid his hands upon his, his disciples, why not in latter days? Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 2, page 195 and 96. Hugh B. Brown, a member of the First Presidency for several years, explained how Revelation is currently received. Hugh B. Brown, a high-ranking member of the Mormon hierarchy for 22 years up to his death in 1975, says in just published memoirs that many church decisions called Revelations were actually decisions first thrashed out thoroughly by the top authorities. An idea is submitted to the First Presidency and 12 thrashed out 
discussed and rediscussed until it seems right. Then kneeling together in a circle in the temple, they seek divine guidance. And the president says, I feel to say, this is the will of the Lord. That becomes a revelation. It is usually not thought necessary to publish or proclaim it as such, but this is the way it happens. Most Mormons are unaware of such a complex procedure, said Mormon historian Michael Quinn in an interview, or if they are aware of it, they are uncomfortable with the notion in light of the appearance of unanimity. Oh my gosh, unanimity. And divine inspiration when decisions are announced. That's Salt Lake Tribune, December 4th, 1988. Um, Hold on just one second. I have a, a kid who's asking me questions, and I don't know what he's saying. Hold on. We're on page 120. Ancient prophets never had to thrash out, discuss, and rediscuss an idea until it seems right, and then assume that becomes a revelation. President Brown was indeed cor- correct in stating that their revelations were actually decisions by the authorities today. Of note is the fact that shortly before the turn of the century, many revelations were given to leaders of the church and were even written down, but they were seldom published and widely circulated among the members. There were over a dozen, thus saith the Lord, revelations given between 1880 and 1890, but they were never printed on the English editions of the Doctrine and Covenants. They appeared in many journals, lesson books, and official messages of the First Presidency, and some were printed in foreign D&C editions, but none in the English. Since the turn of the century, two official declarations have been added to the D&C and have been called revelations, but no clearer thus saith the Lord revelations have appeared in the last century. Isn't it interesting that these 1880s, thus saith the Lord, revelations were considered by church authorities as inconsequential, but yet they accepted and published some official declarations as genuine revelations from the Lord? The Lord has never given a revelation anciently or currently that began as an official declaration or to whom it may concern. There is no such thing in the Bible or Book of Mormon, according to the Prophet Joseph Smith. If anything should have been suggested by us or any names mentioned except by commandment or thus saith the Lord, we do not consider it binding. That comes from the teachings of Prophet Joseph Smith, page 136. Now we're on page 121. One must conclude then, if there have been any thus saith the Lord revelations, where are they? If there aren't any then we should not consider anything else binding. Dr. Hugh Nibley defined the proper order for receiving revelation when he was teaching a text from the book of Mosiah. There is a time to ask and to receive revelation and a time not to, he explained. Um, I don't know if you can hear me. My phone just went black. Okay, there now it's on, so hopefully you guys can still hear me. Um... Let me go back in to where I was. Okay. Let me try this again. Dr. Hugh Nibley defined the proper order for receiving revelation when he was teaching a text from the book of Mosiah. There is a time to ask and receive revelation and a time not to, he explained. They had many prophets. You notice verse 3. My sons, I would that ye should remember that were it not for these plates which contain these records and these commandments, we must have suffered in ignorance. 
This is in spite of the fact that they had many profits. Don't get the idea that because we have a prophet, we don't have to pay much attention to the scriptures. There's this idea that we have a living prophet to answer all our questions and solve all our problems for us. Nothing could be more absurd than that. Here he says, were it not for these plates, we must have suffered in ignorance, even at this present time, not knowing the mysteries of God. Well, don't prophets reveal the mysteries of God? The Lord told Joseph Smith, if I've told you a thing once, I won't tell you again. If it's in the scriptures, don't ask me about it. You look it up yourself. I'm not going to repeat things. If we don't take advantage of the revelations we have, we are not going to have more. If the heavens have been silent, there's a good reason for it. Teachings of the Book of Mormon, Nibley, Semester 1, 1989 to 1990, Lecture 27, page 438. Let's itemize some of Nibley's, Dr. Nibley's important points. Number one, if we don't pay attention to the scriptures, we will suffer ignorance in spiritual things. Number two, a prophet cannot or does not supersede our study of scriptures. Number three, a prophet cannot answer all our questions or solve all our problems. We're on page 122. Number four, many mysteries are explained in the scriptures. When the Lord has revealed something to us, we should not continue asking him about it. Number six, the things revealed in the scriptures need not be revealed again. Number seven, if we neglect the scriptures, we will lose contact with the Lord for any more revelations. Number eight. If we are not receiving revelations now, it's because we have failed to obey revelations already given. Spiritual gifts characteristic of both the early Christian church and the restoration were very similar and very abundant. Gradually, however, they dwindled away in both dispensations. Prophecy was considered one of the most important, if not the most distinguishing gift, marking divine approval of the church and his people. Dr. Hugh Nibley noted this and elaborated, a most remarkable witness to the cessation of heavenly gifts in the church, and especially of prophecy, was the celebrated Tertullian, that's circa 160 to 230 A.D. The first, and in many ways, was the greatest of the Latin fathers, Tertullian. He seems to have been a, con a convert joining the church at about the age of 40 in Carthage, in Carthage. No Africa, that's what it says in brackets. And was one of the greatest lawyers of his day. Tertullian was not a man to be fooled. He wanted to know things for himself, and he made himself the foremost authority on the nature and institutions of the original Christian church. Like Clement and Justin, martyr before him, he was predisposed by long and laborious study in the schools of the pagans to recognize and appreciate those special characteristics of the Christian teaching, which set it off sharply from all other doctrines. He knew, as they knew, that philosophers, administrators, journalists, scholars, orators, and teachers, if not quite a dime a dozen, can be trained up in any desired numbers, but not so with prophets. Page 123. The gift of prophecy was, for Tertullian, the strongest recommendation of the divinity of the Christian church, and it was only when painful experience had convinced him beyond a doubt that the main church no longer possessed that gift, that he did an amazing thing. Tertullian commonly called the Puritan of the early church, the man who placed zeal for salvation above all other considerations and who showed up word 
by word and deed that no sacrifice was too great provided only he gained the sal- that salvation. Tertullian left the church. In doing so, he did not change his mind about the gospel. What he did was to join the Monistans, or I'm sorry, the Montanists, a strictly orthodox sect with different or with differed from the main. Let me read that again. A strictly orthodox sect which differed from the main church in one important thing. They preached that the gift of prophecy must be found in the church if it is the true church that was what Tertullian was after. At the time of his going over, he wrote a remarkable work in which he accused the main church of having supplanted the authority of revelation by the authority of office and numbers because they have the teaching doctrinum, doctrinum or doctrinam of the apostles. He reminds the clergy it does not follow that they have their authority postestatum. All men are governed by discipline, but power comes only from God by the Spirit. The apostles work not by the formal operation of discipline, but by direct power from God. Show me, therefore, you who would be apostolic, some prophetic examples, and I will acknowledge the divinity of your calling. It is true they have ministerium and official calling, but that is not imperium, the actual possession of power. The spiritual power of the church is that exercised only by apostles and prophets for the church is the spirit working through an inspired man. The church is not a number of bishops. The final decision remains with the Lord, never with the servant. It belongs to God alone, not to any priest. The world and the prophets, Nibley, pages 246 to 248. Page 124. Today we have a multitude of men claiming to be prophets and revelators, but there is no evidence of the gift of prophecy. When people have spiritual gifts of revelation, prophecy, seership, and miracles, it is a demonstration that God is with them. What, then, does it mean when they do not have those gifts? The prophet Joseph said, in Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 270, quote, Because faith is wanting, the fruits are. No man since the world was, had faith without having something along with it. A man who has none of the gifts has no faith, and he deceives himself. If he supposes he has, end quote, Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 270. A man might not have any office in the church, yet possess the gift of prophecy. Likewise, the ordination of a man as a prophet, seer, and revelator does not make him one, nor automatically give him the gifts of prophecy, seership, and revelation. When those gifts and powers are lost, much more is lost within it or with it. As Joseph F. Smith explained, if the time or condition should ever come to pass that a man possessing human weakness or weaknesses shall lead the church, Woe be to the church, for it will then become like the churches of the world, man-made and man-led, and have no power of God or of life eternal and salvation connected with it, only the wisdom, the judgment, and intelligence of man. Gospel Doctrine, page 138. How many spiritual gifts must be absent from the church before we recognize that God is no longer with us? The prophet Joseph Smith said, The gift of tongues is the smallest gift, perhaps, of the whole. Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 246. And yet, how many saints today have heard the gift of tongues? If we do not enjoy the smallest gift among us, does the church have any power of God or of life, eternal, and salvation? 
page 125. Now, reader, you need present revelation from God to your own dear self in order to help you out of this nasty, confused labyrinth and to set your feet firmly upon the solid rock of revelation. Mere flesh and blood cannot help you now. It requires an almighty arm to effect your deliverance. Therefore, put no more trust in man, for a curse rests upon him that will be guided by the precepts of man. You also must know it for yourself and not for another. End quote. That's 1853 editorial, Millennial Star, uh, volume 15, page 276. To summarize this chapter, we should recognize that today presents a new form of the test to the saints. Formerly, the members suffered from mobs, persecution, Indian trouble, famine, crickets, U.S. troops, obnoxious laws, and public hatred. No longer are such troubles inflicting the saints, but the testing continues in another front. Personal revelation is the only safeguard for salvation. We are told that deceptions will be so severe that almost the very elect will be deceived. Furthermore, we have been warned that God will send them strong delusions. The spirit of revelation comes like a ratio signal, or a radio signal, sorry. If we are not in tune to that spirit, we fail to get revelation from the Lord. Even some of the best people can pick up the wrong station and get the wrong signal. In other words, a high-tech $1,000 radio can miss the right signal by a small degree. But a $5 radio might pick it up if it is tuned in correctly. Today, there are many signals and many revelations, but only one station originates from the Holy Ghost and the Lord. Revelation from God is more critical now than it ever has been. And that leads us to page 126 and the beginning of chapter 10. If you want to call in, the call-in number is 8... Wait, now I don't have it in front of me, so I can't remember... 518-889-8827, or 918, sorry, 918-889-8827. I was about to say, yeah, it's 917-889. Seriously. All right, 917-889-8827. Yeah, that's why I mute myself when I'm up here because everybody's talking. There's only one... Uh, loadout available. Usually there's two, so there's a long line of trucks backed up. So that's why I haven't been uh, paying anything because these guys talk a lot about everything with no relevance to anything. So anyway, I'm going to mute myself again. But uh, So yeah, the phone lines are open. Anybody is welcome to call in. The guy that called in last night even though he, that's a pain in the butt what he did, and he was deceitful in his way of coming onto the show because he's like, I just want to understand. I don't know very much about Mormonism. And then he starts pulling all these quotes out of some book that he's read. Um, but not even really good because, like, he was quoting, he's all, the Book of Mormon says, and the Book of Mormon does not say what he was saying it says, not even a little bit. And then I was like, have you ever read the Book of Mormon? And then I was like, have you ever read, not read in the Book of Mormon, have you ever actually just read the book itself? Well, no. And then he was all like, but he was talking about how he's read the Sadiq and the Quran and the whatever, all these things. I think he's a liar. I think he's read quotes in books about things. But anyway, I don't care. Those guys... 
want to come on and attack Mormon, bring it on. I'll take them all on. So, anyway, go ahead, Kim. Um, okay. And just continue the reading. Sorry. Yeah, the preview. The preview. The preview for Chapter 10, yeah. Sorry, I'm a little bit distracted. I have all of the kids um, are waiting for me to be done with this because I have been so busy today with all of the things that I am <laughs> trying to accomplish. And so now they're like, uh, what are you doing? Because <laughs> I just got back here and now they're trying to figure out what's going on. So I'm like, oh, I have to do the radio show. Hold on a minute. And now, um, yeah, so every time that I appear to stop or you start talking, they're like, Mom, wait, just one second, one second. And I'm like, oh, goodness. So that's what I am doing. You can probably hear Lydia in the background. Okay. So let me do the Okay, I'm going to call 10. in, um, Kim. Yep. I'm going to uh, bring somebody in the call screening room, and then after the preview, we'll probably bring them up on the air. So area code 801, uh, we're going to go into the call screening room, and then you can ask me your questions. And then after my wife is done with the reading, then we'll answer any questions or comments that you might have at that point. So go ahead, Kim, and do the preview for the next chapter that we're going to be reading tomorrow, and I'll be right All back. Right. Okay, so this is chapter 10, beginning on page 126. Can leaders lead astray? You cannot lead a person astray unless that person is willing to be led astray. That comes from Heber C. Kimball, Journal Discourse, Volume 12, page 189. During a seven-mile cross-country race in Malaysia, the lead runner took a wrong turn, and all the other racers followed him. Running about 10 miles before the race, officials found them. We think how stupid the racers were to follow the lead runner so blindly, but many times in our earth, earthly experience, we play follow the leader because it's too difficult to make the effort to learn if the leader is actually headed in the right direction. Occasionally, occasionally, someone will come along who stops long enough to study out where that front man or men are leading. The savior could be considered in this category. There was a full-fledged race going when he came upon the scene. While the runners were following the leaders, they were pushing with all they had to keep up to be abreast, racing with the crowd. The leaders had always run their path, and they never questioned this authenticity. They simply took for granted what the runner in front, or that the runner in front, was going the right way. He then came into the race, meaning Christ. He saw where those who were supposed to be leading the race were headed, and he knew that that was not the path that the judge had set for the race. So he stopped, took note of the roads, and headed off in another direction. Since he was the leader in this new direction, the leaders that were going in the other direction became very angry that he should do such a thing. Why didn't he follow them like all the other runners? Of course, the only thing to do was to belittle him and eventually get rid of him. He could prove dangerous to the course they were leading. So that is the beginning of Chapter 10, Can the Leaders Lead Astray? Um, in chapter 10, page 126. 
and I don't have any way to tell if he is coming back in from the screening room or not right now. I don't know if he can hear me while he's in the screening room either. Okay, well, to our active listeners, I'm sorry about all the dead air tonight. Um, just sitting here and um, waiting. I Oh, there he is. I am actually about to go into that dead area between <laughs> the... Uh, yeah, but we have uh, uh, Steve on from... Well, he's calling on area code, but I thought he was from Phoenix. Gosh. Okay, I turned my TV radio off. As soon as I get down to the thing uh, that whatever, I'll uh, actually, I'll bring and ask you some questions, and then as soon as I will, uh, I'll chime in as well. So I'll bring Steve up right now. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear what you were just saying. Can you tell me again? I'm going to bring Steve up but I'm about to go into a bad area. So he can ask a question. Maybe you can answer some things before I get back in four, four minutes. Okay? All right. Steve. If I can get the phone to work. Oh, my gosh. I might not be able to get the phone to work. Hold on. I'm here. I don't know if you can hear me. Can you hear me? can hear you, Steve. Uh, you're kind of quiet um, on the line. Um, I'm not sure if Mark can hear you right now because he's going in a bad area. Sure. But um, if so you have any questions, question? yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so my, my big question was for, um, for Mark. Um, so he just basically, um, you know, kind of explained what his role is and, and what he feels that God has called him to do. So my question really has to do with um, uh, the idea of, of, you know, Messiah Ben Joseph. And because I know that there are many people who believe that Joseph Smith will return and fulfill that role of Messiah Ben Joseph. And so I wanted to kind of get Mark's uh, understanding of that and maybe, maybe see what his opinion is of that, the whole doctrine of, of eternal lives and, you know, multiple, having multiple mortal probations, which would enable Joseph to return again, as many have supposed that he would. Yes, and that is a really excellent question. Um, 
he absolutely i i don't even want to uh try to attempt to answer the question because um he has a really great way of putting it and phrasing it um he definitely um has talked over that in the past in a few of the other radio programs that we have done but he loves to um be able to get um live questions too so um Oh, man, I wish that he could hear this right now. He said that he would probably be out of service just for a few minutes. I'm, there he is. I'm coming back into the area. Okay, so multiple mortal probations was attempted to be taught by Joseph Smith in the, uh, the lecture at the Grove, which was shortly before his death. It was a lecture he was not able to complete because it started raining during the lecture. So we have some snippets of some stuff. Have you ever read the lecture at the Grove? Yes, Steve. I, I, you know, it's interesting. Like in the scriptures, we have all these letters from Paul, and they consider that scriptures. Why don't they consider the King Follett discourse in the lecture at the Grove, as well as other sermons by Joseph Smith, ex, uh, explaining some of these deeper things? How is it that they have not been canonized by any of the Restoration movements to this point? It drives me insane. Because the, the doctrine of multiple mortal probations is a true doctrine. And before I ever knew about the uh, lecture at the Grove, uh, back in 2010, um, God taught me a whole bunch of things. And in them, he taught me, he said that there was this great secret he wanted to reveal to me. And I was like, oh, great, a secret, awesome. And he taught me that when we are resurrected, that we are damned in that resurrection unless we are exalted. And that in order to progress, we have to put off the resurrection, go back on a new earth, and go through another mortal probation. So when I le read the lecture at the Grove, I was like, that's awesome. Because God, he'll show me things and then he will lead me to where somebody else talked about it. And that's what he did with this. And I love that he does that for me because I'm like, I mean, if I just read it to begin with, then I'd be like, oh, that's interesting. But he taught it to me before he led me to where Joseph Smith talked about it. So um, now part of what he was, uh, revealing to me was part of a question that I had been asking him. I was studying out reincarnation to the best of my ability, and I found this really awesome case of reincarnation where this kid, he really loved this old World War II airplane, everything about it, he, and the aircraft carrier that he said it was on and all this stuff, and, like, his parents had taken him to museums, and he just loved this, this airplane. And, um, and he loved these, this aircraft carrier. And there was like this reunion of uh, flyboys from the aircraft carrier who flew these airplanes. And this was quite a while ago. But there was this reunion when he was like five or six or seven or something like that. And his parents actually took him to this reunion. They asked if this kid can come. And they... They were able to bring him there, and he was, and he knew who these people were. This kid knew who these World War II veterans were. He recognized their faces. 
and he knew who he was as well. And it turns out wow. that this kid, the person that he said that he was, he was shot down, and his uh, his cop, uh, he was, I guess he got oil on him, and the fire started, and he went into the, the water, and it killed him, right? But, like, he just, there was so much evidence that this kid lived this other life. And I was like, God, this is so amazing. This is proof of reincarnation. But, like, as I tell everybody to do, I take what I, I do what I tell everybody to do. I take what I believe to God and I ask him if it's true. Right. Yeah, thanks for sharing that story. Yeah, that he remembers all of these things. Go ahead, Kim. Mark, I think we lost you for a second. I was just going to say, I think we lost you for a second, and now you came back on. But also, um, one of another part of his question was about um, how some people believe that Joseph Smith is going to come back again as a resurrected being to be this um, one mighty and strong to, you know, set the house of God back in order. And so you you know where that originates from, why they believe it, and uh, why you do not. Well, I, okay, so, um, I, just in case it broke up when I was saying this, um, God told me that that kid was a ministering spirit to that individual who died, and that's why he remembers all these things. Not that he was actually that person. But then he said, there's more to it. But then he didn't tell me what the more to it was. He wanted me to study it out. And to this point, I still am not clear as to whether we come back. I know that Ogden Kraut wrote a book about reincarnation, and he gives some pretty interesting evidence. But it's all inconclusive. Like, you can go one way or the other with it. The Jews believed, you know, and they were like, well, who do you, uh, when Jesus was like, well, who do, you, who do they think I am? They the, the the Jews at the time, they were like, well, he's one of the old prophets. Come back. So obviously they believed in reincarnation, but it doesn't mean it's true just because they believed in it. But there was some doctrine that they had been taught that was revealed and restored by the prophet Joseph Smith about multiple mortal probations. So um, as far as Joseph Smith, so when I saw the quorum of the twelve who were mighty and strong for this earth, Joseph was among them, and he was one who was mighty and strong. But his office was the office of an Elias to lay the foundation for Zion to be redeemed, so that when the time came for myself to come, we had a foundation to build upon. So I don't know if he'll, if he'll come back. I know that Heber C. Kimball and Brigham Young they believe Joseph was going to come back, and there's some really interesting stuff, especially in that book on reincarnation, about those quotes. But I don't believe that Brigham Young or John, uh, John Taylor or Heber C. Kimball, I don't believe that they were prophets in the same way that Joseph Smith was. I don't believe that they were the Lord's anointed, because in section 124, Jesus tells Joseph Smith to build a temple whereby the Most High can come dwell therein, that he, the Most High, or the Father, can come dwell therein, that he might restore that which was lost unto you, meaning the world, or that which is taken away, 
sinning it had not yet been restored to the earth, even the fullness of the priesthood. So um, Jesus says, if you do what I say, I will fight your battles for you. You shall not be removed from your place. That he would restore the times and seasons, or in other words, the Moedim, or the holy days of Jehovah, which were the feasts and the festivals of Jehovah, which was not done. He also said, if you do these things, this will be the beginning of revelation for the redemption of Zion. That was not done. But Jesus also said, if you do not do what I say instead of, uh, instead of blessings, you'll, be, you'll receive wrath, cursings, indignation, and you will be rejected as a church with your dead. So, they were not, Jesus didn't fight their battles for them. They were removed from their place, which Jesus said wouldn't happen if they were obedient. But they were disobedient, partly because they were taking the wood that was meant for the building of the Nauvoo Temple that was coming down from Wisconsin on the Mississippi and building Masonic temples. Brigham Young was building the second story of uh, the second wing of his mansion. Like they were doing all these things when they should have been building the temple. Now, the city was down in the marsh. So they had to drain the marsh, but the temple was on the bluff. There was no reason why they couldn't have built it faster. And in fact, three and a half years after the revelation was given in January of 1841, they were just starting to work on the second story of the temple. And it was never finished. So three and a half years is a big deal to God. So January of 1841 to June of 1844... Joseph, uh, Joseph was taken, so was the patriarch of the church, Hiram Smith, and the church was rejected. Now, you were asking about Phil Davis and his teachings and, and all of that. He teaches, and Denver Snuffer teaches this as well, that the Melchizedek priesthood would, had been taken before 1841, and that they had to build a temple so that Jesus could come restore the Melchizedek priesthood. Now, I have a problem with that because in the Revelation, Jesus Christ says to build a temple in my name, in the name of Jesus Christ, where the Most High can come dwell therein, that he, not Jesus, but he might come and restore that which he has taken away from you or... Um, even the fullness of the priesthood. Now, it's the Father that has to come to that temple. They have to build it in Jesus' name, but the Father has to come to that temple. And the reason he has to do that, to restore the fullness of the priesthood, was because it had not yet been restored. So there's different divisions of the Melchizedek priesthood. Joseph Smith taught that all priesthood is Melchizedek, but there's different divisions. The Melchizedek priesthood given from man to man, is the gateway in which you qualify to have the fullness. But as you qualify after you receive it from the man on the earth, the time will come when the Father himself will come and restore the fullness of the priesthood, which is his to give. Joseph Smith taught that all the ancient prophets had the fullness under the hand of God. Also, in... Uh, the patriarchal, um, not the patriarchal, um, lines of authority in the Old Testament, it'll, sometimes it'll say, and so-and-so received the priesthood from so-and-so. I don't think this is in the Doctrine and Covenants. 
and so-and-so received the priesthood from so-and-so. And then every once in a while it'll say, and so-and-so received the priesthood from God. And people are like, well, that's, you know, there's a little difference there. It's because that person who received the priesthood from God had received the priesthood from a mortal man on the earth, but qualified to receive the fullness of the priesthood under the hands of the Father himself, because he is the only one qualified to give the fullness of the priesthood. He gave it to Joseph Smith, not, I mean, not Joseph, uh, to Jesus Christ. He gave it to me, but I and Jesus Christ are not even qualified to give the fullness of the priesthood. It can only be given by the Father. Now, the problem with Bill Davis's argument is that if, if the Father had to come restore the Melchizedek priesthood, it is taught by Joseph Smith that in order to be in the, the very presence of the Father, you have to have the Melchizedek priesthood. Now, you can have a vision where you can see the Father. Joseph Smith had a vision. The first vision, that was a vision. But in order to come into the presence of the Father where he lays his hands upon your head, you already have to have the Melchizedek priesthood. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say that Jesus re, uh, re, like took a, the Melchizedek priesthood away. And I know that the Melchizedek priesthood is still on the earth simply because I have stood in the physical presence of the Father. And I know that could not have happened unless I had the Melchizedek priesthood. So Denver Snuffer and Phil Davis, as much as I like Phil, uh, and as much as I learned from Denver, in this way they are Judas goats leading people astray from the truth of what was really going on there. So I don't accept Brigham Young or John Taylor as the Lord's anointed because Jesus said he would reject the church with their dead. But I do understand that they can still receive revelations as prophets because we all should be prophets. And God is no respecter of persons. So, and also, when their priesthood was restored, at least with John the Baptist, he said this priesthood would remain on the earth until the sons of Levi do offer an offering in righteousness, which implies that there would be a point when it would be taken off the earth. And the sons of Levi have not offered that offering in righteousness yet, because those two sons of Levi are the two witnesses in the book of Revelation to lay their lives down as an offering in righteousness. And when they are caught up in this rapture type event, when they're caught up off the earth and taken to the throne of God, as it says in Revelation 11 and 12, then all they who have the true priesthood will be taken off the earth with them, and there will be no more priesthood on the earth. Anyway, I'm going into Sunnyside depth. It is about a minute or two where it's going to be breaking up, but I can still hear you for the most part. So um, is there any questions? Maybe, maybe I, hopefully I can hear them. Yeah, yeah, actually, uh, you brought up some great points, and uh, I, I did actually have two more questions based on what you've said. One is, um, and I'll address this one first, was just so when the, the two witnesses that you're, that you're mentioning um, – 
so, you know, in the book of Zechariah, he talks about there being four craftsmen. I'm sure you're aware of that, that passage of scripture. And, and many of the Jews have interpreted that to mean uh, two of the four craftsmen are Messiah ben, ben David, who is, who is Christ, uh, Messiah ben Joseph. And then, and then others believe that the last two are the two witnesses of the Moses and Elijah figures that will emerge uh, as the two witnesses spoken of in the book of Revelation. So what is, I guess, what is, what is your take on that? Do you, do you feel like part of your role is to be one of those two witnesses? Or do you feel like Messiah and Joseph's role is separate from the two witnesses? Or, or do you know who the two witnesses are currently? Or have you met them? I guess those are some of my questions there. And then I have one other question after you answer that. Okay, sorry, I got kicked off, and my wife also got kicked off, so Steve, you were the only one in the air for a minute there. Uh, you were talking about uh, four craftsmen, them being Messiah ben David, one of them being Messiah ben Joseph, and then the two witnesses probably in the book of Revelations, is that right? Hello? I can oh, hear you, yes, fine. I one. cannot hear him. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay, Kim, did you get kicked off too? Yeah. Okay. All right, go ahead, Steve. So, yeah, no, I was just asking, um, you know, what, what your view was of the, of the two witnesses in relation to the mission of Messiah bin Joseph and then uh, also Messiah bin David, and if perhaps you know who those two are or... Have you met them, or have you received any kind of revelation from the Lord on on who those two might be? I uh, I believe, but I don't know that I am one of the two witnesses. I don't know who the other one is. I have thought that maybe it would be John the Revelator, because in order for his testimony to be enforced, he has to die. He hasn't died yet. And he was, uh, his testimony in the book of Revelations has to be sealed with his death by his blood. And he was translated, so he's still walking around, but he's not dead yet. He didn't, he never has died. I think that might be the other witness. I'm not sure. Um, the Messiah ben Joseph, according to Judaism, and to their theology on that, will come and restore uh, the kingdom before the end, before the return, or, well, they don't believe the return. They believe that Messiah ben David hasn't come yet, but we know that he already has. And, um, but that he will be a general uh, in the wars in the last day, in the last days before the Messianic period, and that he will die and that the Messiah then, David, will resurrect him, which is really awesome because that is exactly how it's going to happen, but it just won't happen exactly how they think it's going to happen. Now, um, before, um, for each major dispensation, there is always four craftsmen. Um, when God showed me the first presidency and the quorum of mighty and strong ones for this earth, he taught me that in the first dispensation that Michael would come as the morning star to begin this earth 
with uh, to be the father of this earth, both uh, both spiritually and physically, because uh, it's because of the law of adoption, and that we can go kind of deep into that. But then during that dispensation, that uh, Enoch was also mighty and strong, that Noah was mighty and strong, that Moses was mighty and strong, and that Elijah was mighty and strong. And they came to do different things within the first major dispensation of this earth. So there's, there's actually more than three major dispensations, because the millennium is a dispensation in itself. But in the terrest or the celestial time period of this earth, there are three major dispensations, but then there's dispensations within dispensations. And each of these mighty and strong ones would have a dispensation within the major dispensation. So um, for the next period of the earth, the bright and morning star period of this earth, that Jesus Christ, who is the bright morning star, would come and that John the Baptist would come to prepare the way as an Elias before him, and he was mighty and strong before the foundation of this earth, and that Jesus Christ was mighty and strong as well, and that Peter, James, and John, who came to do the work the ministry of Jesus, were also mighty and strong, and they were part of that quorum of twelve in the before the foundation of this earth. Um, I'm going through Wellington Cut. I know it breaks up just right where I'm at. So I'm just going to hold on just a minute if they answer the last part. Kim, am I breaking up much? I can hear you just fine. Okay. Yeah, my wife keeps on getting kicked off. This happens all the time. Um, where we're doing things and then the phones glitch that never happens when, uh, you know, any other time, only when we're doing the radio show. Um, but yeah, she's having problems. So anyway, um, the last dispensation had an Elias to come to prepare the way and his name was Joseph Smith and he was also mighty and strong before the foundation of this earth. Um, he, he taught that God the witness would come and take a body. Uh, you can find those uh, that quote in the words of Joseph Smith by Andrew Ehat. There's two or three other quotes, that are, well, I think it's one or two other quotes besides that one, where Joseph Smith alludes to these things. But, and then the whole idea that Joseph Smith is God the witness contradicts section 130 because Jesus Christ told Joseph Smith in section 130 that at the time he was alive, that God the Father and God the Son were had bodies, but the Holy Ghost, or God the Witness, was a spirit. And at that time that was true. Joseph Smith had a physical body, so how could he be one and the same as God the Witness, which is what the fundamentalists teach. So, and Phil Davis actually has plenty of, uh, plenty of, uh, relationship with the fundamentalist uh, people. Uh, Kevin Kraut is a mutual friend of ours. And Anyway, but so I think he gets that from there. Now, Bill Davis, I believe, probably did have the experience that he, he claims to have had with an angel. But one of the problems with prophets, and we all do this, every single one of us, 
we think because we know one thing and we can make a logical deduction that we, that, oh, if this is true and that's true, then this must be true as well. And instead of getting revelation about that, we make assumptions which aren't true. And I think that's what Phil Davis does with believing uh, that, that Joseph Smith is God the witness. So, I don't know. I've, I've tried to talk to him personally about that, but he never returns any of my phone calls. And when I'm on the air with him during the Zoom calls, like, I don't want to bring it up on his air. Um, and I've tried to a little bit, but then he always gets a little bit hostile with me. So I would like to talk to him privately about that, but he just he doesn't call me back. He has my phone number. I've left him messages, but he doesn't want to hear it. So, so I don't know. I, I can't. I can't. And, I, and the Doctrines of Christ thing, I've brought it up a little bit in that, uh, on that Facebook group. But um, most of what I post in there does never get, it never gets approved by the admins or the moderators or whoever's approving it. So, so I just stopped trying to post in there like I do a little bit, but not, not a lot. So, I mean, I don't know what to say. I, other than I believe Phil is wrong about that part of it. But as far as, so when, when God told me that about multiple mortal probations, he did say there was something more to it. But he never told me what that was. So I think that there could be room for reincarnation. And maybe he'll come back. But then that also contradicts something that Joseph Smith taught. That um, when Paul saw Jesus Christ on the road to Emmaus, I think it was, um, Jesus Christ couldn't baptize him or do any work physically with him because... When the priesthood is on the earth, it is for the priesthood to do the work on the earth, not for an angel or even God himself to come and do the work. So when John the Baptist restored the, the, um, the Aaronic priesthood, he gave that priesthood to them, but then he had them go and baptize each other because once they have the authority, it's for men on the earth to do the work. And that it's not for an angel. Joseph Smith coming back as a reincarnated person would be coming back to do a work again. And the scripture says that that, that we have one one life and then the judgment. So I don't know. I, I don't know. There could be room for it, maybe. Um, it would be nice if he was going to come back. I think that would be awesome. But I think that Another way to look at all those quotes and all that evidence is that Joseph had the opportunity to do that. He was given a chance to do that. And that if the saints are disobedient, I don't know if it's me or if it's you, but I can't hear you, Mark. Can you hear me now? Yes, I can. Yeah, I, I was just going up Washington Hill. So um, the Jews teach that that there wouldn't need to be a Messiah Ben Joseph if the if the saints or if the people were righteous. 
um, but he would only have to come if they were not righteous. Um, I think that Joseph Smith could have done all the things that he was said that he was going to do if things worked out the way they were supposed to work out, but they didn't work out the way that they could have worked out. So um, I've been sent instead. So I don't know. I, another thing, too, um, <laughs> I've had people say, you can't be who you say you are because you're not the reincarnated Joseph Smith, and I don't believe I am. But how in the world would they know whether I was the reincarnated, if that was a, if that was a true thing, and he was going to be reborn on the earth, how do we know who he is? If somebody comes along with the authority and the claims that I have, and they think that Joseph's going to come back and he's the one that had the authority, then, you know, I, I, I just... They're like, well, you can't be. You're not Joseph Smith, and I don't. I don't believe I am. I saw Joseph Smith. We're two different individuals. So, I don't know. I I think there's a lot of arguments, and you know what? Let people have the arguments. But when they come to a conclusion of what they believe, they should go to God and get confirmation of the spirits that what they believe is correct, and do it line upon line, here a little, there a little, and simple and, uh, and and work on that and get the confirmation and then they'll be light in the right way but where people have all these ideas and these speculations and they teach with authority things that they're speculating about all they're doing is leading other people astray but that's really no excuse because each of us have the opportunity to go to God and to get confirmation of the spirit on each of these topics so I don't mind that the discussions are had, but but I don't know if he's coming back. I hope he is, but I don't know. So, uh, did you have any other comments or questions? Yeah, just one final one, and that was uh, so one of the things that Phil Davis has taught is that the um, and, and I'm just asking because I I want to know your view on this and because. Because one of the things uh, about one of the things that he taught that I didn't understand was so he basically teaches that that there are two orders of the Melchizedek priesthood that there's the apostolic order and then the patriarchal order the holy Melchizedek priesthood and when we look at the teachings of Joseph Smith he talks about that you know there being three orders the first being the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood the second being the priesthood of Abraham and then the third being the priesthood of Melchizedek right I mean. And essentially, like you said, all of them fall under the Melchizedek priesthood in some form or another, um, yeah. just as appendages there unto. So, uh, so my question for you is: Do you hold that same view that it's that that sort of you know first order of the Melchizedek priesthood is apostolic and then patriarchal, or because I I I, don't, I can't find those terms in the scriptures anywhere, and so I'm wondering where he came up with that, or if that was just something revealed to him, or if you had a similar revelation. I'm just curious what your view is. Um, I I have heard and I've read stuff about the patriarchal priesthood, and I know that that is a true thing. Um, but there's three orders of the Melchizedek priesthood, and uh, the Aaronic has orders as well, Levitical and Aaronic. But um, hold on here, I'm going to pull over because I'm at the coal terminal and I got to dump the flow, but I want to talk for a minute, so I'll just 
pull over and take a break. Um, I believe that there's three orders of the Melchizedek priesthood, not two, and that you, um, well, I don't know, because I only received the priesthood from the laying on of hands by an individual, and then I received the fullness from the Father. So I only received two orders, but the fullness is the fullness, right? And maybe that's what Joseph was talking about with the patriarchal priesthood. I do know that within the patriarchal priesthood is the matriarchal priesthood, and my wife has received that priesthood. Um, so when the father laid his hands on my head, he gave me authority and keys to do all the work that I do. And Kim, was that what, 2016, that um, God gave that revelation to have you receive the matriarchal priesthood? Yeah, I think that's right. So, So that's been restored. But I think that just because of my own experience, I've only received two orders. I received the Melchizedek Priesthood by David Christensen in Richfield, Utah, back in 97. And then um, in 2003, the Father laid his hands on my head and gave me his priesthood, the fullness of the priesthood, and filled me up into himself. So... Um, I think Joseph Smith talked about the patriarchal priesthood a lot, but I don't believe he ever received it. Of course, he did have his calling and election made sure, but I think that there's a lot of things missing from the restoration as well. Because when they were leaving Nauvoo, Brigham Young packed a bunch of stuff up into, uh, into one wagon that was extra heavy. And then he told the driver to drive it a different way over the ice of the Mississippi River. And it fell through and a lot of things were lost, including the, the written endowment. So the endowment that, Joseph, or that Brigham Young had was all by his own memory, not because he had the, the records, because they were lost. And I think that there was a lot of other things that were lost. And some think that Brigham Young did that on purpose. I think he probably just thought the ice was more sturdy over there and that the extra heavy load would should go the other way. And uh I don't I think it was an unfortunate accident that that those records were lost. But um I think that there's a lot of things that that were lost. So um I think maybe he knew more and maybe he even had more experiences than what we have in our the history of the church where we can look back at the, the stuff, but I, I just, I don't know. Um, I don't know. So I, if, um, if there is a three divisions of um, Melchizedek priesthood, then Phil Davis teaches that all Melchizedek priests are lost. Uh, because of section 124, which I think he gets that through speculation, not revelation. So I don't know if I answered yeah. the question, but sure, I, yeah, I no, he did. And at least, at least from my understanding of his explanation was that um, it was lost, but then now that the um, Messiah Ben Joseph or uh, Joseph Smith has returned. Um, at least my understanding from my personal conversations with him, 
was that because because Joseph Smith has now returned, that priesthood is is able to be once again restored to to God's people, to his select servants in these last days as they're going forward. Um, meaning, kind of like what you said, where you know you get the hand of an angel laid on your head, and then and then at a certain point you get the hand of the Father, he lays his hands on your head and ordains you. So anyway, that that was my understanding from Phil Davis was that it was it was lost and the those lines severed but then now it's back. So that's kinda at least that's my understanding from my conversation with him. Interesting. Yeah, um I wish I could sit down with him and talk to him. I just uh, I'm never able to get a hold of him. So um yeah. everything that I've been able to talk to him about's been on his Zoom call and I don't want to bring it up live on his air out of respect to what he's trying to do. But, yeah, there's a couple of things that I just disagree with with Phil Davis. Um, well, for one, the Messiah Ben Joseph, um, according to the Revelation, has to be partly a descendant uh, in Isaiah chapter 11 of Judah and Joseph. And Brigham Young, or not Brigham Young, Joseph Smith was a pure Ephraimite. So he doesn't have the he doesn't have the uh, the blood of Judah in him. He is a pure mm-hmm. Ephraimite. So um, oh, that's another thing too. Um, okay, so in uh, that Joseph Smith history, when the angel Moroni comes and is speaking to Joseph Smith, I think it's in verse forty in the current book, uh, Pearl of Great Price. Moroni says that the man of Acts chapter 3, the man like unto Moses, is Christ, but the day had not yet come when he would be rejected by his people. And it's interesting because Jesus Christ had already been rejected by his people. And everybody's like, well, Jesus Christ is a man like unto Moses. Well, if the angel Moroni is saying that he had, uh, that, that man like unto Moses is Christ, but the day had not yet come when he would be rejected by his people, then I believe it's talking about Messiah ben Joseph, not Messiah ben Judah. And Jesus was a man like unto Moses, but just because he was one of them doesn't mean he's the only one. Um, also, it, it's interesting in section, I think it's, 103. I, I might be wrong about that, but there's a revelation in the Doctrine and Covenants where Joseph Smith acts, asks about Isaiah chapter 11, and he wants to know who the stem of Jesse is. And Jesus says, Behold, verily I say unto you, the stem is Christ. But he doesn't say, I am the stem. And Christ is a a title, meaning Messiah or anointed one. And we know because of Zechariah chapter 4 that there are two anointed ones of the Father. It talks about the Most High and his two anointed ones, or two Messiahs. That would be basically the, the first and second counselors for this earth, which would be Jesus Christ and God the Witness. So when Jesus says the stem is Christ, but he doesn't say that he's the stem. I think he's talking about Messiah ben Joseph at that point. And 
I guess you could say Joseph Smith could have been that man because he kind of was rejected by his people, but not really. They still accepted him as a prophet. But um, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it says that the lost prophet would be rejected by most most of the people, and that only the um, the humble people would accept him for who he was. And in fact, uh, if you go to Dead Sea Scrolls K4 or Q4, it actually gives a really good description of the last prophet, uh, his life, his ministry, his physical appearance, marks on his body. And one of the interesting things is he said that he would have red hair. Joseph Smith didn't have red hair. He could have had red hair, I guess, because he was Scottish. He was from the Scottish royalty. We, a lot of people think he was uh, from England. But when you go back into that Smith line that he is part of, it actually goes back into Scottish royalty. So, but I don't, I don't think he had red hair. I think he had sandy blonde hair. But the prophet of Qumran in the Dead Sea Scrolls saw a vision of the last prophet, and he said that he would have red hair. And Joseph Smith, not only does Joseph Smith not fit that description, the prophet of Qumran actually said that the last prophet would have thick thighs, which is kind of funny. It's another way of saying he's a little overweight. <laughs> so, um, Joseph Smith definitely didn't fit that description because... That guy was slender and lean and strong, and he had he did not have thick thighs. So he doesn't fit the description of what the, the last prophet would uh, would look like as far as the prophet of Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls tried to explain in the in that in, in that document. So I don't know. There's a lot of things. I mean, I I look at a bunch of different stuff and. Um, I just, I see how Joseph Smith, that people could reject certain things about the, the what is said about the last prophet in order to make Joseph Smith fit into what has been said, because they'll take and cherry pick different things and they'll say, look, Joseph Smith did this and this and this and this, but then the other things that he's, he's supposed to do, he didn't do that. So then you come up with this this other theology um, which might just be theological fan fiction where they say, well, Joseph Smith is going to come back as a reincarnated individual and he'll fulfill all those things at that point. So, I, I don't know. I just I would say that people should study all these things out and they should ask God if what they believe is true with simple interjections. So I take it out line upon line, precept upon precept, uh, as it talks about in Isaiah chapter 28, and that if they do that and they get confirmation from the Spirit, then they can be built upon the rock of revelation and not the sands of speculation. But unfortunately, people really love to teach the sands of speculation as the rock of revelation. And uh, they become Judas cubs when they do that. So, so you know, there's different, there's like different divisions. You've got your false prophets, your true prophets, and your true prophets who have become fallen prophets. 
I think that happens a lot where God tries to call a prophet and they begin teaching false doctrines, uh, doctrines of men mingled with scripture and they become fallen prophets. And I think it's a really dangerous thing for, for people who are true prophets to begin to teach their theories as facts that they control sure. things like any other prophet can. So, Absolutely. Well, uh, one thing that I've felt impressed to do is when I've been in different congregations, because uh, I do often, you know, hop around to different congregations, and uh, I've I've been impressed to bear witness at fast and testimony meetings uh, that, you know, the the righteous branch, the servant of the Lord, who's you know hidden as a fallen shaft in the quiver of the Lord, come forth in the Lord's own due time, that He is here now upon the earth, and that the Lord He just has not yet been revealed, uh, but that we should you know, be looking for him, essentially. Um, yep. So, uh, so that would be... And that would be yeah. Isaiah chapter 49. But there's a sad thing about that chapter when it talks about that prophet. It says that his children would be taken from him and that he would be given another people. And what I believe is that the reason that they are taken from him in a sense is because the majority of the people will not accept him when he comes. And that because the tribe of Ephraim or the drunkards of Ephraim won't accept him, that God will bring another people. And I, if I am that prophet, which I believe I am, it makes me sad because I've been doing this ministry well, I, I went public in 2014, shortly after the death of Ariel Sharon, and for the most part, people like to hear what I have to say, but it's too fantastic for them to accept. And because of that, my people, who I should be a leader and a follow, uh, a father to, they don't accept me. And when Jesus, or when the Father told me to sever the power of all the holy priesthood, which we talked about earlier being Daniel chapter 12, he said, if they won't accept you as my witness, I will not accept them. And so because because of their hard hearts, they just, they reject it. They reject it. So um, I think Jesus Christ had a similar problem and what that was is that so many people had these ideas that they taught as fact among the Jews that when he came, they were like, oh, maybe. But then they rejected him because it didn't fit their theology and their ideas of what they thought was supposed to happen. So they ended up rejecting him. And another people was, was chosen, basically the Gentiles. And I think that that's probably going to happen again where because the people will not accept the servant who is a witness who I am, that God will remove them and that another people will be chosen. So I don't know. They're all things for you to contemplate and to get revelation on for yourself. But um, but those that's what I believe. And they Joseph Smith did say that he was uh, a polished shaft in the quiver of the Lord, and he was to a point. But 
I don't know. I mean, I guess he could sit that to a point. But his people, were, they weren't taken from him. He was taken from the people. So, I don't know. But some things to, to think about and ponder over as you sure. uh, mull these things over a little bit. Absolutely. And uh, I guess, and, and I know we're probably coming to the end of our time here, but I wanted to ask you, so is it possible that there could be, um, you know, that the Lord could be speaking of two different servants, but at the same time, like, you know, I mean, because obviously you said you feel like you're one of the two witnesses. So, so what if one of the other witnesses actually fills part of the description and the understanding that Isaiah had, and then the other, which could potentially be you, or could, or is you, or according to you, um, yeah. could fit other parts of that description. Is that is that well, not true? Because, for example, like like you said, that Messiah ben Joseph would be a general. Um, could it be that one of the two servants is a general, and then the other is just someone who preaches to the people? Or do you interpret that more to be like a general in the eyes of the Lord, as opposed to an actual general in a military battle? Because a lot of people would say that he is a, a great military leader, right, Messiah ben Joseph. So, anyway, yeah. go ahead. Well, um, so there's some interesting things. Now, in the, the revelations that we've received, the exodus that happened with Moses, um, what happens in the last days would be way stronger than what happened even then. And this is what I believe, and this is speculation. I haven't been given direct revelation about this. But so after um, the remnants, is led in the highways of the top of the mountains and in the desert places like Isaiah talks about, I believe that the remnants after the, the destruction of Babylon the Great will make their way back, uh, basically following the Santa Fe Trail back to Independence, Missouri and set up stakes in Zion at that point and that there will come a time in the future when we do go back to Jerusalem as a people, as an army, to liberate those people and to to do the work of the ministry among the, the Jews in that place. And at that point, I will become a general over the armies of God on the earth. So and when it talks about... Um, two will, uh, two of my little ones will put 10,000 to flight. The reason for that is because at that point, the fullness of the priesthood will have been restored to the people. And, and um, we will go back as a, an awesome army with the power of God to do the work of the ministry and to liberate those people. But um, that's speculation that I have. And I thought maybe that might be the case, but like I said, I haven't received any direct revelation about that. So um, the other thing, too, I was thinking, so we can have multiple fulfillments of prophecy. So Jesus Christ was a man like unto Moses. But Moroni said that, that the man like unto Moses of Acts chapter 3 was Christ, but the day had not yet come when he would be rejected by his people, but Jesus had already been rejected by his people meaning that this Messiah was was also a man like in the Moses, but he was different than Jesus. So this idea that, you know, the the, the quiver and the uh, or the, uh, the polished shaft in the quiver of the Lord, um, 
could be two different people or even more than that, that's completely um, possible because we we know that Messiah or that uh, the man like into Moses that Jesus fulfills or fulfills that description, but but also that the angel Moroni says that there will be another Messiah that comes that will also fulfill the description of the man like into Moses. So I think it's entirely possible that there could be multiple fulfillments and that there are, there is multiple fulfillments of different things. So Great. Uh, now, uh, what would you say is the, and I'm wrapping up my questions here because I know we're at the end, but um, just, just want to say two things. One is uh, how, what's the best way to, to get a hold of you if, uh, offline if I have more questions? And then the other one is, do you have any recommendations on uh, source material for uh, many of the things that you've said? For example, I've read um, uh, David Mitchell, David C. Mitchell's book, Messiah Ben Joseph, uh, which is a really great work. Um, but are there others that you'd recommend? Well, I mean, Abraham Gileadi seems to understand these things pretty good. Um, uh, there's a book called The Final Prophet, and I can't remember who wrote it, but if you type in The Final Prophet, you'll probably be able to find that, and it talks about the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Urantia book. Are you familiar with the Urantia book? Uh, no, I haven't heard of that. Wow, that's one that is interesting, but I think that there's a lot of truth in it, but I think that there's a lot of doctrines of men mingled with Scripture as well. So like with everything else, even with with scripture you still have to consume it and then take what you believe about it to God and, and get confirmation of the spirit but it's interesting because um, oh I think it was 2013 um, in August when I had a man from Philadelphia uh, contact me and he wanted me to baptize him so he flew out from Philadelphia, and we picked him up at the Salt Lake uh, International Airport. And I was like, why do you believe that I am who I say I am? And he says, well, you fit the description of the last prophet spoken of in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I said, well, what do you mean? Well, you have red hair. Okay, well, that's interesting. And I'm overweight. So I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So I, like, typed in red-haired prophet, and... I found out that Muhammad actually had red hair, <laughs> but then I kept digging and digging and digging, and I found this book called The Final Prophet, where it actually talks about the Dead Sea Scrolls with Cave Form, the Prophet of Qumran, talking about the last prophet, and it, he gives a detailed description of his family life, his work life, what he looks like, his ministry, how he comes into the ministry, and all this stuff. And um, that, if you can find that book online, because I know it's online, um, that might be something for you to look at. Now, I do have your messenger on Facebook. Um, if I have time and I remember, because I'm so busy all the time, I'll try to send you uh, a link to it. Because I know I have it in my notes on my iPhone, but I can't remember where it's at and it takes me a minute to find things so unfor unfortunately I work a lot <laughs> so um, and then I try to do this and then 
I just I'm so busy all the time. I have a hard time doing everything I want to do. But I'll try to I'll try to send you that information. Um, also, okay, if you thanks, type Mark. in Messiah Ben, if you type in Messiah Ben Joseph, uh, the rabbis will ma- they've made tons of videos. Tovia Singer, Singer, which he drives me insane, but at least he talks about these things. Um, of course, he doesn't believe Jesus is the Messiah, but he talks about these things. And there's other people who've made videos about Messiah Ben Joseph and different speculations and ideas that um, come from different, like, Christian backgrounds, or they come from a Jewish background. Some come from a Mormon background. And um, they bring different things to the, the puzzle. Um, but then... You know, you've always got to be aware that people bring in their own speculation as well. So, so yeah, um, and call Sounds in any time. Uh, yeah, we try to open Absolutely. up the phone lines at the end of the reading. So we're on five days a week, usually from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. And then we can go into overdrive for up to an hour from 10 to 11. Uh, if we have somebody like yourself tonight, we're in overdrive right now. So, all right. Well. Uh, okay. Sounds good. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Thanks. Oh, and one last thing, uh, Urantia. How do you spell that? Oh, let me see if I can pull it up on my phone here. I guess I can just get that from you through Facebook Messenger then. So so you yeah, can wrap probably. up. Yeah. Okay. Um, That's U R A. I'm sorry. Okay. Fine. Did, did you? Okay. U R A N T I A. Thanks, Kim. So you ran. Thank you. Yep. You're welcome. Okay, good deal. All right, so we're going to, um, I'll put you back in the box. We're just going to play the music after this. But, um, Kim, um, what was the uh, chapter that we're going to be reading tomorrow? Can you remember? Yeah, it's chapter 10. What? It, it's uh, Leaders to Lead the Church Astray or something to that effect? Um, it is, just give me one second and I will just tell you. Um, it is, yeah, Can Leaders Lead Astray, page 126. Okay, okay cool. Um, yeah, so we'll be back on tomorrow, like I said, at 8 p.m., and we'll, uh, we'll go to that point. Um, let me just, hold on here. All right, yeah, I'll just play the music. Kim, I'll give you a call as soon as the music's over with. Um, because we're in overdrive, when you hang up, because you're on the host line, it will shut the show off. So just wait and mute yourself. And when the music yep. is over with, uh, then you can okay. hang up, and I'll call you back as soon as that happens. So thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Steve, for calling. And uh, we'll be back on tomorrow with another episode of Fundamentally Mormon. At 8 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, 7 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for listening. Take care, everyone. God bless. And goodbye.